Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must, be, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortal, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory before, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing to move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that, you, that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks be to God for his word. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort my people, says our God. Comfort them. Encourage the people of Jerusalem. Tell them they have suffered long enough. And their sins are now forgiven. I have punished them in full for their sins. And a voice cries out. Prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord. Clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley. Level every mountain. The hills will become a plain and the rough country will be made smooth. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the whole human race will see it. The Lord himself has promised this. And a voice cries out. Proclaim a message. What message shall I proclaim? I ask. Proclaim that all human beings are like grass. They last no longer than wild flowers. Grass withers and flowers fade when the Lord sends the wind blowing over them. People are no more enduring than grass. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain and proclaim the good news. Call out with a loud voice, Zion, announce the good news. Speak out and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah that their God is coming. And the sovereign Lord is coming to rule with power, bringing with him the people he has rescued. And he will take care of his flock like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs together and carry them in his arms. 
and he will gently lead their mothers. The book of Isaiah has an awesome reputation amongst Christians, containing as it does so many well-known references that are seen as referring to Jesus, the Messiah. Everything from behold, the virgin shall conceive, and unto us a child is born, to by his stripes we are healed. And there are many, many more. I could sit here all morning just reciting them. It was lovely to see Robert last week, but I noted that he too used the text from Isaiah, chapter 55. It comes as a bit of a shock, therefore, to discover that the book of Isaiah had at least three authors, and we only know the name of one of them. Scholars refer to these three authors as the first, second, and third Isaiah. Only being scholars, they say that in a rather erudite way. They talk of the proto-Isaiah and the deutero-Isaiah and the trito-Isaiah. Needless to say, none of those writers would have recognised themselves in those names. The first Isaiah was Isaiah, son of Amos, from Jerusalem. He prophesied in the 8th century BC, during the reigns of no less than four different kings of Judah. Now we don't know the names of the other two, other than to say that they probably weren't called Isaiah. The second Isaiah seems to have written or perhaps had somebody write for him, everything from chapter 40 up to chapter 55. So this passage is the beginning of his contribution. And Robert's text last week was at the end of it. The third Isaiah had written everything from chapter 56 on to the end. And these prophets lived perhaps as much as 300 years after Isaiah, although they were likely to be familiar with his work and didn't think it strange that they should add their own contribution to his. Now the reason we know all this is that many scholars over a number of years have concluded it from their analysis of the text. The context of Isaiah of Jerusalem is that of the dying years of Judah and the threat building from Assyria and later from Babylon. However, second Isaiah is clearly writing from the context of a people who are already overrun and in exile and need to be told that there's an end in sight. The third Isaiah was writing from an even later context where restoration and rebuilding needed to be done. 
All three of them were speaking, or perhaps writing, the word of God to the people of Judah. They were forth-tellers, as distinct from foretellers. So their message was aimed, in the first instance, at their own people and within their own context. You see, ancient prophets, like modern ones, are rarely consciously prophesying in a predictive sense. They are more merely voicing the word of God as they saw it. It was generally only seen in a predictive way when later generations heard what was said and recognised that what they had heard chimed with their situation in their own day. And that applied equally to all of the biblical prophets as well as to the stilted utterances in your typical local church. Now, the exile had been going on for close on to 70 years. Almost all of those in exile couldn't remember what it was like before. The temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the leaders of the exiled people had to work very hard to avoid being completely assimilated by the pagan nation of Babylon. They had seen the exiles from neighbouring Samaria become completely assimilated when they were overrun by the Assyrians about a century earlier. And they were determined that the same wasn't going to happen to them. The Babylonian Empire was itself overrun by Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire in 540 BC. And as he had a reputation for repatriating his exiled subjects back to their homelands, the writer mentions this when he is trying to encourage the people in chapter 45. The people needed hope, because without hope, we die. Cyrus would also bring the language of Persia into their native Hebrew. And this would change their language into the Aramaic that had become so familiar by Jesus' day. The writer was calling the exiled people of Judah to look at their situation in a new way. They needed to stop being overwhelmed by their problems. We can all look at our problems and difficulties and feel overwhelmed by the lack of quick fixes or easy answers. And the people of Judah had been in exile for much of the past 70 years. They had made a tolerable living for themselves. But they were very much aware that they weren't where they were supposed to be. Their nationhood was gone. Their temple was gone. Their independence was gone. 
and they were filled with a nostalgia for the good old days. Hardly any of them could actually remember the days before the exile, but they'd heard the stories from the parents and yearned for their return. They felt that God had abandoned them, and it was their own fault. They had sinned, and Yahweh doesn't tolerate sin, does he? We can easily look back at our personal or church situations and readily see how much worse they are from what they used to be. We can gaze wistfully back to the days when the churches were full, the sun always shone, the children could play in the streets and you didn't have to lock your door. The writer of Ecclesiastes, it's usually attributed to Solomon, puts it like this. Never ask, oh, why were so things so much better in the old days? It's not an intelligent question. And incidentally, King Solomon wrote this downbeat and despairing piece of prose just when the kingdom of Israel was at its greatest. And it would never be that good ever again. Those of you who are the fans of Handel's Messiah may well recognise the opening verses of our reading as the lyrics of the first two arias and the first chorus of that magnificent piece of music. It was composed by George Frederick Handel in 1741. And you may be surprised to discover that much of the church was outraged by it at the time. They thought it was sacrilege. If only they were to see forward a couple of hundred years. So, Second Isaiah's message begins like this. Be reassured, God is not finished yet. It might look like an unending disaster, but God is still at work. Hallelujah. He was saying that there is a great gap between where you are and where God wants you to be. And in that gap were several wide rivers, a range of mountains, and the most inhospitable desert for miles around. And he was saying, no matter why you ended up here, God has a positive message for you. God is supremely forgiving. He wants you to move forward to the next step. And the next step is build a motorway. I don't suppose our writer had much of an idea of what a motorway was. But his description fits a motorway perfectly. Fill up every valley, level every mountain. And if you're unsure, jump in your car. And ride along the M62 into Yorkshire. 
There you will see exactly what the writer had in mind. He was thinking, build a road between Babylon and Israel in your mind. Turn the problem into an opportunity and smooth the path to let God do his work. Open your mind to the possibilities that God offers. Because God wants to reach out to you and through you to others and to the rest of the world. God wants to is God is not hindered by deserts or rivers or mountains, nor is he hindered by empty churches, disillusioned Christians, or unreliable ministers. Isn't that good news? He is saying, don't look for something that isn't there. Instead, look at what is there differently. There's something going on in the church. To a greater or lesser extent, the historical denominations seem to be in decline, both in terms of numbers of members and also in vitality. Some have been predicting a catastrophic disintegration in some areas. And church closures and measures have been accelerating. But God is still at work. I'm frequently hearing reports of churches growing spectacularly here in the UK. Not all of them are connected to a denomination. Some of them don't meet in a church building at all. Some don't even meet on a Sunday. Shock! Horror! And they are so different from each other that it is difficult to bracket them together at all. Although they too tend to be referred to generically as the emerging church. Many of them wouldn't recognise themselves in that title. They meet in hospitals and libraries, community centres, warehouses on industrial estates, coffee shops and pubs. Many of them focus on a single activity, running a food bank or a million different counselling or advice centres. And even libraries where local authorities would otherwise need to close. The church is not dying. Rather, it is simply changing shape. This is where the glory of the Lord is being revealed today in 2016. And on top of that, in just those places in the Middle East where Islamic State is trying to slaughter Christians and almost anybody else other than certain types of Muslims, Middle Eastern Muslims are turning to Christ in unprecedented numbers. One of the early church leaders 
in the ancient city of Carthage, which is in modern Tunisia, if you really want to find it on the map, was called Quintus Septimus Florens Tertullianus. He lived between 155 and 240 AD. His name was a bit of a mouthful, so we simply called him Tertullian. But he is reputed to have said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we're seeing that in the Middle East today. You see, expectation is the key. We need to learn to see God moving among us. And we see God moving among us when his people, when the people of, we need to see God moving among us, among his people, rather. That's where I got wrong. (laughs) Yeah, It's the old eyes, can't help it really. We see God moving among his people when the people of God are expecting to see him move. But if we come to meet in worship without expecting God to be there, he won't disappoint you. So don't despair. God is not finished yet. The experience of... Exile had traumatized the people of Judah. They found themselves back in a place not unlike the slavery of Egypt, from where their national story had begun. That story had told of a glorious deliverance by Yahweh from a cruel and brutal Pharaoh back in the days of Moses. So they began to yearn after a new national deliverance. Their last king, a man called Zedekiah. It's quite interesting that their last king ended on a Z. (laughs) He had died, so they looked to God for a new king, a messiah. Their temple had been destroyed, so they yearned for the day when they could return to rebuild the temple. And with no temple, they had lost the visual aids that told the story of their race, so they focused on the writings, the Torah, through which they believed God had revealed himself. So they set up copying centres where the many pages of law and history could be copied and recopied by people called scribes. Do you remember them from the New Testament? Then they needed people who could become the teachers of the law so that the people could become aware of what God wanted them to be. These became known as Sadducees, named after Zadok, the first high priest of the temple back in the days of Solomon. The Sadducees became the priesthood in waiting until Ezra, himself a priest, was also able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in 510 B.C., Sorry, 516. Those six years are quite important, you know. Meanwhile, the people 
needed places to meet, at least until the temple was restored. So they began opening a Knesset in every town and village as a place of worship for the reading of Torah and where teaching could take place. And it's interesting that the modern Israeli parliament today is called a Knesset. By the 2nd century BC, having been conquered by Alexander the Great, the Knesset were better known by their Greek name, Synagogue. The people's desire for a new king evolved over time into an expectation of a returning Messiah. And from time to time, a succession of people would arise and would be followed as a Messiah until they were either killed or abandoned by the people in disillusionment. The Maccabean Rebellion was the largest of these events in 169 BC, an account of which you can be found in the two books of the Maccabees in the Apocrypha and also online at Wikipedia. The Greek government was eventually overrun by the Romans in 93 BC, although the tensions between the Romans and the Jews were no better. Eventually, exasperated by this Jewish obsession with their coming Messiah, the Romans appointed a Jew in 29 BC as their king in Judea. He was designated king of the Jews. And his name has gone down in history as one of the world's tyrants. It was Herod the succession of expected messiahs and subsequent disappointments was the background into which Jesus of Nazareth was born. We are so familiar, perhaps too familiar, with the Bible stories surrounding his birth and his life. But the fact is, that the Jewish leaders were familiar with this man's evident claims to be that Messiah, but thought he had failed to fulfill their expectations of what Messiah would be like. He had failed to take the stands that they thought he should, but he had taken a whole series of provocative stands that seemed to them to be intended to make them look like fools. So ultimately, they conspired in his death with the very Romans that they had been hoping Messiah would come to deliver them from. And they won, or at least they thought they had. Jesus was crucified, buried in a convenient tomb, donated by a Samaritan called Joseph, and they had sealed the tomb, posted a guard, job done. We who are Christians will undoubtedly view those same events in a completely different way. Our understanding is that Jesus is the Messiah. And that he showed that death 
was not the end. The church, for all its shortcomings, is with us still, 2,000 years on. The persistent endurance of the saints, as the Calvinists put it, is illustrated by the fact that the church still lives. The New Testament writers repeatedly testify to Messiah's reign. The New Testament writers repeatedly testify to Messiah's reign. And there has been a continuing belief that they and we are in the last days. We look around us and the world seems to have gone quite mad. Do you get that feeling? Whether we're looking at the most recent version of militant Islam, the strange world of globalised business, the peculiar convulsions of our elected politicians, especially after the Brexit vote, or the persistent feeling that there is an unstoppable moral decay. And then there's Donald Trump. Enough said. The church has always been faced with these signs of the time. The first 300 years or so of the church is commonly known as the era of persecution. This began with the persecution by the Jews. But as the era progressed, the persecution became increasingly from the Romans. Until the Emperor Constantine was converted and proclaimed the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And that decreed tolerance for Christianity. Persecution didn't then go away. As persecution then came from one branch of Christianity against another. And the era of heresy hunting had begun. We know very little about the Dark Ages. That's why they're called Dark. (laughs) But the year 1000 was viewed by Christians in England at least as a likely return date. Had the Bible not spoken of a 1000 year reign? The year 1000 passed completely without incident. But soon after began the reign of the Saxon, King Edward the Confessor, who was regarded as so devout that he was later canonised. He died without a son son and heir, and Harold Godwinson was acclaimed as king in his place. His mother had been the sister-in-law to King Canute. You know the one... He was famed for trying to stop the tide coming in. Unfortunately, King Edward had tacitly promised the throne to the Norman known as William the Bastard, the Duke of Normandy. Although for obvious reasons, we now know him better as William the Conqueror. Later that year, William invaded and beat Harold's army at battle, just outside Hastings, in 1066, 
exactly 950 years ago. A battle that was reenacted on the original site just last week. And the world had changed forever. Once this milestone was passed, and Jesus hadn't returned, almost any adverse event would be enough to make people think that the end was nigh. The Black Death Plague came in the years between 1346 and 1353. It had such a devastating effect on the population, it reduced the population of Europe by as much as 60% over the seven years. And it also created a huge labour shortage, which in turn led to the first of several peasants' revolts. This one was led by a man from Kent called Watt Tyler in 1381. The world must have seemed to have gone quite mad, again when in 1517 Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany and began the Protestant Reformation. Amidst the wars and the chaos, he and most of his contemporaries believed they were in the last days and the coming must be soon. The madness recurred when Oliver Cromwell in 1649 presided over the trial and execution of King Charles I. And then, to his horror, the government that replaced the king proved to be equally corrupt. There must have been some heart-stopping moments when much of London burned down in the year 1666, and this in the year that incorporated the number 666 in its title. The newly restored King Charles II called it a called for a day of atonement soon after as a result. Then in 1789 the madness reappeared this time in France. The French Revolution led to the execution of King Louis XVI. Only this time he was replaced by an even bigger tyrant, Napoleon Bonaparte. The date of October the 22nd, 1844 is of note. I hope you've got it in your diary. This was the date that various scholars predominantly from the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, concluded that Jesus was coming again. It was based upon calculations taken from the numbers in the book of Daniel. And you can tell the way it went, as the years that followed are still referred to by scholars as the Great Disappointment. I could go on. World War I... The Holocaust, the nuclear bomb threat, communism, the growing European Union, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, any of them could have heralded the end 
but they didn't. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is coming again. The world has gone quite mad. But the coming of Jesus is not yet. While the church endures, we are not finished yet. All the great saints have believed themselves to be in the last days. Everyone from St. Paul to Louis Palau, from Oliver Cromwell to Billy Graham, has believed that they were the last generation. But clearly they have not been. I would want to suggest that believing that you might be that last generation is an essential ingredient to provide the motivation to serve Jesus effectively, especially in evangelism. And you never know. Someday, we, or our descendants, we will be that last generation.